The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and delighted to welcome each of you to today's teleconference where we are going to talk about hot topics dealing with permanent residence or green card related issues as well as naturalization. On my panel with me today, I have two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys with years and years of experience. I have Khorzad Mehta, who is our in-house resident green card expert with incredible in-depth knowledge about medical doctors, health professionals, and that whole area that most of us get scared of in life. And we have Jim McLaughlin, who is the attorney coordinator for the green card department and another one of the Murthy Law Firm rock stars in the legal team. So as we were figuring out, you know, the topic for today, we really sort of thought, let's try to focus on issues that you might as employers have to deal with. So as we know, the world of immigration has always been unpredictable. But the past couple of years have seen the sands shifting in new ways at an alarming pace, resulting in new challenges for you all as employers and your foreign national employees who might be pursuing the lawful permanent residence process right here in the U.S. So in this teleconference, we will examine recent developments in the permanent immigration, the employment-based immigration process for employers and your employees. Um, and uh, let's get started, Korzad. So there's this whole thing about the U.S. Department of Labor or USCIS needing to verify something, and the term that's used often is business verification unit. What What's going on? I've heard of delays. Well, Sheila, you know, as a threshold, it's important to remember that U.S. employers are the only entities that can sponsor foreign nationals for permanent residence to the United States, and they have to be lawful, operating, and, um, and uh, bona fide um, uh, employers. Now, generally, after completion of the pre-filing recruitment phases of the labor certification, that's the ads and the request for the prevailing wage, um, the U.S. Department of Labor's instructions permit an employer to file that application uh, that is built upon those recruitment ste- steps in one of two ways. Either they can file it via mail, uh, to the national to the uh, national processing center in Atlanta that handles uh, the uh, labor certifications for the United States, or they can file them electronically through the Department of Labor's PERM uh, portal, which is at plc.doleta.gov on the internet. Um, in order to open up a account on the PLC portal, which is by far the preferred manner in which to submit a labor certification to the Department of Labor. And Department of Labor has been very, very clear about this. They, Although they accept paper filings, they disfavor them. In order to be able to file via this preferred method on the portal, an employer is required to register themselves and have a account with the Department of Labor's PERM portal. And a threshold requirement of that is uh, to is for an employer to be verified in the system 
and for their credentials to be determined. Interesting. So I guess it's all part of this scrutiny to ensure that a company or an employer that is trying to sponsor a foreign national is a valid, legitimate, bona fide employer that can be verified as a valid company. So they will verify your tax ID number, your whether you're an LLC, LLP, maybe check with the State Department of Assessments and Taxation if you're actually registered in that state. So it's really a legal verification of the entity before the employer can file the perm labor certification. Yeah, I mean, they, they actually go beyond just the paperwork of a company, uh, beyond FEIN uh, and tax returns. They want to look at bricks and mortar. They uh, oftentimes uh, want to look at uh, the, the, uh, the lease for the office space or uh, utility bills that are going to that office space. So business verification is a big deal. So it's sounding more and more like that H-1B where they say, show me the premises, show me the location, show me where you are, show me it's legit. And they get very upset when you do office sharing arrangements, which are completely valid, legitimate and bona fide by American companies, but if you're an American company that is trying to sponsor foreign nationals, remember you are subject to a much greater scrutiny of the bona fides to, of the employer and to ensure that if you say I have 50 employees, then they're like, oh, 50 employees, you will need at least, you know, maybe 10,000 square feet of space. So where's your 10,000 square feet? So they ask a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. Similar to the business verification, Jim, what about the account registration? Well, the account registration, you know, as Corzat said, the preferred method is filing online uh, ETA 989 with the Department of Labor after you've completed your recruitment um, for a particular position. But with the business existence unit in Chicago, they're going to be first, their first line is checking their the web address and the information regarding the company. One of the primary sources they use for that is done in Bradstreet. Now, it's vitally important for employers going through the labor certification process to try to remember to update their account annually with Dun & Bradstreet because that can be the first step in the Department of Labor determining whether or not they're actually going to issue an RFI for business existence documentation as Corzad was talking about. Now, something Corzad also mentioned, the preference is to file online. We find that there seems to be a trend where if you actually wait too long, to, fa- to open your account, go through the business existence unit, that if you have, are forced to paper file because your ads are running out, there seems to be a higher likelihood of audits as well. Interesting. What about the, so let's talk briefly about the business existence check. So we've recently, it has become more common for this business existence check, which I think Jim referred to could take a month or more to complete and so if the employer has not registered early in the process uh, with the orderly preparation and filing of the application, it actually may not be possible at all, which could then necessitate further delays caused when the employer files the EDA 1989 for the perm labor certification process. And so it's very important to register as early as possible. Right. Yeah. The, the, the new trend with this isn't that it isn't that they weren't doing this before. But what we find is there, the delays once you do get a business existence request are substantially longer than they used to be. Okay, uh, not not good stuff, but I guess everybody has to be verified for bona fides of the employer sponsoring uh, the foreign national employee. Korzad, if I can go to you now, uh, the whole issue of maintenance of the account. Yeah, like like uh, like Jim said, uh, the they are taking longer 
to perform the tasks that they've always been required to perform for the orderly maintenance of the perm system. Is it because they're doing a more in-depth study or are they dragging their feet to delay issuing approval so they can delay approving cases? I don't have an absolute answer for that. If I was forced to really speculate on it, I would say that it's a variety of factors. Uh, I think that, you know, you know, we are in a good economy. And that means that there might be a lot of new employers who are entering the uh, entering the race, if you want to call it that, to employ foreign national employees because we're at near record low levels of unemployment. It also might have something to do with something we might touch on a couple of times while we speak today, which is the administration's Buy American, Hire American uh, memoranda, which has directed federal agencies to really look at all decisions, all functions that they take with an eye to protecting the American workforce and and the economy. Uh, And it might just also have to do with resource limitations. Uh, Just like our employer clients are competing for skilled talent within an ever-decreasing pool of applicants, Uh, the government may very well be doing the same, and they may just not have as many people as they need in these business verification units to perform these tasks at a uh, good clip. I thought it was interesting where you said more and more people are possibly joining to hire foreign nationals from all of the IT consulting companies that I've been talking to. Those who are already in this business model are ready to pull out what little hair they have left because they are so stressed with the... H-1B RFEs with the perm delays, with everything going on right now. So uh, if people are joining in, they, they clearly must be clueless about what's going on in the world. But OK, let's understand a little bit more about business, the account maintenance. I'm not sure I'll let you finish. No, no. So as I was saying, you know, these things are taking longer and longer. And communicating with the uh, Department of Labor uh-huh. is therefore that you know takes that much longer. One has to remember that these accounts, even once you set them up, their passwords expire every 90 days. And you know, if, if, if I'm any indication, I forget my passwords for my own personal accounts on routine, uh, at, at a routine clip, and I'm always using the forgot password link to try to get a, uh, a, a temporary password sent to me so I can access my accounts. And with these government accounts, the scrutiny is just that much higher and the resource limitations are much less than, let's say, you know, Gmail or something like that, where they can get back to me very, very quickly. The government might take some time to reset my account or send me a temporary password or something of that nature. So it's important to, once you've set it up, to keep on top of it and maintain it. Okay. So now, similar to what we're seeing in the H-1B world, we're seeing greater number of Department of Labor audits with a trend where they're requesting evidence of a bona fide job offer and a bona fide employer slash employee relationship. Presumably, it's beginning to sound a lot like the H-1B RFEs that many of you all on the conference call today are probably accustomed to here getting, but not in the perm context. So, Jim, do you want to just go over briefly what's going on with that whole thing? Sure, yeah. We're definitely seeing a bleed over from what we call the 2010 Neufeld Memo, where in the H-1B context, they're asking about employee-employee relationship and control issues. We're seeing an uptick with audits from the Department of Labor that are focused on on those similar issues. Um, and in 
and specifically the auditor requesting statements from employers providing detailed information regarding the employee relationship, how the employer exerts control, who pays uh, the foreign national. We've also seen um, audits that are asking about evidence of actual contracts and business engagements. And like Corzad mentioned earlier, you know, I think this is all part of the Buy Higher American, Buy American, Higher American policy memo of the Trump administration. These audits aren't very widespread at this point, but they are increasing. So it's something employers should be aware of. Thank you, Jim. And if all of you on the conference, on this call, re understand and realize, you know, the Department of Labor, their primary role has always been to protect the American worker. Their role has been to, you know, prevent, um, protect American workforce, ensure that there's no ready, available, or willing U.S. worker to do the job, which is the whole purpose of the PERM application. And their big picture sort of goal is to ensure that the wages and working conditions for American workers is not unduly depressed by hiring foreign workers. So the Department of Labor looking under the hood makes a little bit more sense than that whole issue with USCIS where they look under the hood when the main job of the USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service or services, is really to provide a benefit to employers and employees, i.e. services to immigrants. And we'll talk about the USCIS and its role in the I-140 context in a minute. But next, let's briefly touch about the U.S. Department of Labor, which has actually rolled out additional electronic functionality for its PERM portal for employers to receive audits and for them to get the responses to RFEs. So now the PERM portal can be used to submit audit and RFI or request for information responses. The U.S. Department of Labor in liaison with Open Forum and uh, in liaison and Open Forum meetings with ALA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, they've encouraged employers to use the portal for submissions as opposed to just mailing or even emailing responses, as it helps them with conducting efficient and timely review of the responses and contributes to a quicker processing time. So it sounds like they're also trying to reduce reliance on paper and printing out paper. Everything's online. We're all trying to save those trees and protect nature and have less, I guess, less of our landfills filled with useless junk. So it makes sense. But so if you as an employer will ensure that you or your company or your in-house HR or your attorneys, the employer's attorneys actually help with responding to the RFIs online, it might actually help you with a faster response. But Corzad, you've also observed that sometimes it can remain become unwieldy for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the last year, like you said, Sheila, uh, the Department of Labor has really, really decreased the amount of paper that they use. I mean, Jim, you'd agree. I think the only written correspondence that we receive, like actual paper correspondence that we receive from the Department of Labor nowadays, is is the actual certified labor certification right. form. Yeah, Audit everything's emailed. It's great, actually. It, it is. It is. And, you know, technology is a great thing, and our, and our clients who are in the technology industry would agree with, uh, agree with that. But we have observed that the user interface and the manner in which the RFI responses or audit responses can be uploaded into the PERM system can be relatively unwieldy, somewhat cumbersome. Uh, they they require um, a breaking up typically of the response into component portions. Uh, you know, you upload the 
the audits uh, actual notice separately from the ads, from the business necessity letter, and ex- yeah. and, and so forth. Uh, and so, it's also not always clear what term they're using. Correct, correct. Now, the Department of Labor, to its credit, has worked very, very hard to put out uh, a memoranda and contents insofar as you know user guides in the form of user guides for the new PERM portal. But in our experience, from a practical standpoint, we found it unwieldy. We think that the original streamlined process by which these responses were being sent to the Department of Labor, i.e. email, right after they got rid of uh, requiring paper responses, is the most uh, productive. Um, So it requires a lot of upfront time investment by the employer or the employer's attorney to know this document here, this document here, this document here. So it's much easier to just send out an email, have it all together, and then them not complain, saying we didn't see this posting even though you sent it because they didn't receive it or what have you. It also helps with um, record keeping in some ways, Uh, although even if you upload it into the system, you do very quickly get uh, an acknowledgement from the portal saying that they've received the documentation. But um, in this manner, it's just a little bit more uh, controllable. And, uh, you know, as type A lawyers, we all like to be in as much control as we possibly can. So until the Department of Labor says otherwise, we're going to be taking advantage of the administrative grace that they've given practitioners to allow for email uh, submissions to the Department of Labor for RFI, uh, request for information, and uh, audit responses. Okay. Thank you, Korzad. So next we're moving to the issue of the I-140 or immigrant petition by uh, the U.S. employer for the foreign national employee, but the form says alien employee, and we try to avoid the word alien because it sounds creepy and strange and alienish, I guess. Um, so we've been seeing, uh, and we've seen this, I think, at least for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, the whole issue about um, an employer's ability to pay or what we call ATP sometimes to pay the proffered or offered wages as mentioned on the labor certification and the I-140 petition for either some of the foreign national employees or all of the foreign national employees uh, that they have filed for. And actually, it's not just foreign national employees. They ask for foreign national employees specifically because that's Department of Labor's role. But ultimately, the employer has to show that they can afford the proffered wage for all of their employees, including their foreign national employees, based on their tax returns and their profits and all of that. So, Jim, if you would explain what really is meant by the Department of Labor's requirement that the employer needs to have the ability to pay. Sure, sure. Now, I, I think it's important to just have some background of the purpose of USCIS when they're adjudicating an I-140. The purpose is to make sure that the foreign national meets qualifications of the labor certification and that it's a valid job offer. The regulations tell USAS that to determine if it's a valid job offer is to make sure the employer actually has the ability to pay that foreign national's wages listed on the prevailing wage determination. Now, as you mentioned, Sheila, this attaches at the time the labor is filed. From that date forward, the employer needs to be able to show if they're not already paying that foreign national that wage, they have the ability to show it, and they can do, through, do so through their tax returns, net income, or net current assets. What happens, however, is the perm labor certification can be for a future job offer. It doesn't have to be what the person's currently doing. So there could be a difference. You could be filing uh, for a managerial position and the individual is a software engineer because you expect job growth between the time you file the labor and the many years in the future the individual gets the job. So in those instances, when USAS finally gets the 
I-140 and you filed that labor maybe a year ago, they're looking at the individual's pay statements, W-2s, to determine whether they actually have been receiving the proffered wage on the labor certification. And if they're not, it opens it up for USAS to ask what we call an ability to pay everyone RFE. And USCIS has the flexibility to then say, all right, well, we see you file multiple I-140s. You're not currently paying the individual the proffered wage for the I-140 This is the, they're the subject of. So we now have the ability to say, okay, within the past two years, give us a list of all I-140s filed within that period and show us the ability to pay for each individual person on one chart with everybody. Their pay stubs, their W-2s, the I-140 documentation, which if you're an employer who files lots of I-140s or you use lots of different immigration counsel, this can get pretty unwieldy pretty quickly. That is pretty scary, and it's particularly scary when the Department of Labor wage comes back at some ridiculous or outrageous number that the employer says, that's not even close to what we would pay our hundreds of other employees, so we're not going to be able to do that. And then the lawyer says, don't worry, you only have to pay this person after 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years, and if it's in lots of Indian nationals, um, when the priority date becomes current or when the person gets the green card. So go ahead, you can file the perm now, and now we're seeing these RFIs come in or RFEs, et cetera, potentially come in. But so what's the best way forward, Korzad? Yeah, I mean, the siren call of the future wage offer and the future job offer has beguiled a lot of employers. And I think Jim did a masterful job in explaining how ability to pay is determined uh, by the USCIS. The best defense to something like this is preventing the issue right from the beginning. Good practice dictates that you start a labor certification with the I-140 in mind. That's why a lot of our employers would uh, will know this intimately um, that we as immigration counsel look at uh, experience documentation, education documentation, and other documents like their tax returns right up front to determine whether there's a potential for an ability to pay issue or an education experience issue down the line. Uh, When it comes to ability to pay, oftentimes, because like you described, people are seduced, for lack of a better word, by saying, oh, well, I don't have to pay them this wage now and I just have to pay it when they get their green card. Yeah, sure, I'll be able to pay it when they get their green card. And then proceed from there, they're opening themselves up to a problem at the I-140. Good strategy would be to put the time in to the foundational steps right at the start of the labor certification process and really do a deep dive into the minimum requirements for the job offered into the Uh, duties of the job offered to really get a very, very precise bead on what the job is and what it could be classified as. The the technological functionality improvements that we were talking about in the PERM context have actually uh, happened with the Department of Labor's prevailing wage uh, determination context as well. You are allowed to submit supporting documentation and information with every prevailing wage request. We as uh, competent and reputable attorneys, we take advantage of that when we're trying to not really direct, but highlight and advocate for a particular job classification based on a company's needs and a company's uh, wants. Another thing to bear in mind is that once you've determined that and determined what that wage obligation is going to be, uh, take a multidisciplinary uh, approach to making sure you'll be able to handle that at the I-140 stage. And by that, I mean if you are able to pay the uh, wage right from the uh, uh, filing of the labor certification, 
do it. And if you're not because it's not warranted or the job, uh, the person's not uh, is slated to join the job anytime soon, then work with your accountants, work with your tax preparers, and see what you can do to effectively put that money aside. Right, because uh, it's important to note that that ability to pay everybody RFE is cumulative. So if you have 10 employees, they're each missing $10,000 from the proffered wage, you have $100,000 you have to show in net income or net current assets. Good point. Um, and so as we're talking about hot topics dealing with perm or green card cases, um, the next thing we've been seeing, as we sort of alluded to earlier in the conversation or discussion, was the fact that the U.S. Department of Labor and USCIS are both asking, especially with the Department of Labor in the perm audit stage, they're asking questions very similar to what you see with the, in the H-1B context about, hey, employer-employee relationship, show us this, show us the proof of that. And so... What's the what's going on with that, Jim, and how can the employer try to address it? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier with audits, we're seeing it with DOL, but not as much. And, you know, knock on wood, hopefully it continues like that. But with USCIS and the I-140s, we're definitely seeing this mix of H-1B obligations with the I-140. Ultimately, it comes down to, and your legal counsel, to argue that it's a valid job offer and how. But USCIS is asking for a lot of the same things with the H-1B, employer-employee uh, relationship, control, um, explanations as to how you're controlled. If, you're for, if your employee's working at a client site, they're going to get into that often or at least try to get into that with an I-140 RFE like they are with the H. But it's, it's important to remember that there it's a different obligation with the I-140 than the H-1. With the I-140, the key is the valid job offer. So in responses to any RFEs, you want to make sure that you may be, you're highlighting that it is an ongoing business. You have, uh, you have um, acceptable um, revenues coming in. You have client engagements to respond to any of these RFEs. Now, something we see here a lot at the Murthy Law Firm, when individuals come to us partway through, with a labor certification that's already been certified and they're hiring us for the I-140, we see IT consulting companies a lot of times on their labor, they're listing out that it's an in-house position. This may or may not appear to be accurate. And so you want to make sure at the very beginning to avoid any of these RFEs at the I-140 stage because USAS is looking at that labor. They're verifying the foreign national has the requirements. They're verifying the uh, company has the ability to pay. And then they're verifying the actual job. Is it valid? And they look at this. They say, you're in IT consulting, yet this is in-house. Show us your lease. Show us the square footage of your office. How can this person actually be working in-house? So it's something employers really have to be uh, aware of and careful that USAS is aware of the issue, and they need to be filing labor certifications that are done accurately. Sounds good. Uh, similar to the issues or the hot topics or the problems we're seeing is the new or the so somewhat newish RFE memo where the USCIS has the right to outright deny a case without bothering to issue any type of a request for evidence or RFE if they believe that the initial evidence was not properly submitted uh, or all of the required evidence. And in fact, there's now a link and the USCIS website tells you the exact list of documents in order to make this happen. So we all agree that initial evidence is more important than ever before. Korzad, what's going on with that whole issue? I mean, 
like you said, Sheila, uh, USCIS has consistently expressed to stakeholders that the regulations require employers filing uh, pe- petitions in general, and I-140 petitions in particular, provide all initial documents as listed in the regulations. Um, the RFE memo that everyone is talking about, it, uh, it appears to, and it does say that without initial evidence being ap- accompanying the petition, the government can deny the petition without sending a request for evidence or even a notice of intent to deny to try to tease out any potential eligibility that the applicant petitioner or um, or agent may have failed to And submit. it's not cases that are filed after the date that they said, right? September 11th or whatever. It's not after. It's even cases that were pending that were filed before. Or which, which cases does it apply to? It applies to the memo itself went into effect um, as of early uh, September, um, but uh, the the principle of being of, of always filing a complete application and r- the requirements for initial evidence has been around since time immemorial. So from that perspective, it's not really a change. And if you've been able to sit in on the uh, conferences that USCIS has put forth, either through the ombudsman or uh, through their own liaison discussions with the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the government is taking the position that, no, this is really not that different than what we've been uh, operating for before. The government has always been handling cases this way. If it's clear, if, uh, if they show, see a clear ineligibility or a clear um, lack of initial evidence, that they've consistently moved straight to a denial without providing, uh, without doing uh, any additional uh, request for evidence or um, or notice of intent to deny. What's different is is that you know whenever you put something in writing and there's a phase-in period, that tends to reflect a policy change. And what none of us know is how the USCIS is looking at that. If you listen to the USCIS, they appear to be taking a tack or a position of reasonableness. But we're not exactly sure how that's going to look. So it's extremely important to that um, petitioners to avoid a situation where a USCIS officer may institute their own particular judgment as to what's initial and required as to not to really pay attention to those checklists that you alluded to, Sheila, and uh, submit documentation in that manner. And also, I think there was a recent call in early September of uh, this um, 2018 where the CIS ombudsman said that, well, we're not really rechanging everything, and it's meant for those kinds of situations where the USCIS can outright deny a petition, where the idea is for the person to almost be tricky or put a placeholder application, not in a bona fide legitimate filing. But really, the way the USCIS has been behaving, I don't know that anybody feels like they can 100% rely on that when there's this memo that's out there that says they have the legal right to deny a case without issuing an RFE. So as employers, each of you needs to be well-prepared, over-document, submit everything, as, as, as uh, Korzad and Jim have explained, so that it can't come back as an outright denial, and now you've spent thousands of dollars in filing fees and legal fees for nothing. I think it's important to bear in mind that, that you know, the existence of the memo doesn't mean that reasonable USCIS officers are now going to take this as uh, carte blanche to just 
deny any case as they see fit without an RFE and get the case off their uh, off their desk. Uh, USCIS um, professionals are very very much like immigration law professionals. We just sit on opposite sides, but our mission is the should be the same in an ideal world, which is to help people achieve their goals within the confines of the law. So although we don't expect there to be mass denials, it, you know, the best, uh, the best offense sometimes is a solid defense. And though we don't want to practice defensively, we do want to practice thoroughly. So it's just prudent to to follow the directions as set forth in the checklist, provide that evidence right off the bat, or if it's missing, provide explanation as to why it's missing. If you don't have your most current tax return, provide proof that an extension is filed. If the uh, if if the if the degree certificate has been destroyed and there's a another one that's in process and will come in time, let them know. Provide proof. I think that in today's day and age, alluring with clarity and explanation will help us navigate tricky waters. Okay. Thank you very much, Korzad. The next point that's sort of been raised is the hot issue or the topic that we expect is the point that the U.S. Department of State, Charlie Oppenheim, where he has said that the they expect that the employment-based third preference for India or EB3 India could actually be more favorable than EB2 India during this fiscal year. So just by way of background, of course, um, the fiscal year for USCIS or for the Department of Homeland Security in general and Department of State, actually, for most federal agencies, for all federal agencies, it starts on October 1st of any calendar year. So, for example, fiscal year 2019 would start on October 1st of 2018 and go through till September 30th of 2019. So now we're expecting this sort of issue to become where EB3 India will be more favorable and therefore all of you as employers will now be asked by your foreign national employees for whom you've spent a lot of money trying to be very creative and argue an EB2 case by showing it's a sophisticated, complex job, higher salary requiring a bachelor's, four-year bachelor's plus five years of prior work experience or master's degree plus a year or two of experience. Now you're going to have to file either a new case or they are going to request that they want to try and get an EB3 approval from you. And again, we don't know how long that's going to last. It may be for a while. It may be for weeks or months. Uh, in general, EB2 is always better than EB3 because of the slippage. But as Department of State has said, there could be little times when it could be. So many foreign nationals uh, will be tempted to downgrade their long-approved I-140 petitions to the EB3 category to take advantage of the more favorable immigrant visa availability based on their priority dates being more favorable in EB3. Of course, they're going to knock on your door as the employer, or even if it's not on your door, on your HR manager's door, but your, you all as employers or in HR are going to pick up the tab for those extra fee, filing fees and legal fees. And other foreign nationals who are already the beneficiaries of multiple I-140 petitions, let's say one they previously had an EB-3 and one in EB-2, which was upgraded a few years ago, will now be looking to maybe go back and use that EB-3 priority date if it can help them to file their 485. So what happens in EB-2, EB-3 downgrade situations, Jim? Yeah, so similar to what uh, mainland China has been dealing with the past few years, the flip-flop between EB-2 and EB-3, this appears to be occurring uh, with those born in India now. Um, it, but it's important for both foreign nationals but as well as employers to understand the limitations of potential downgrades. So an individual has an EB-2 I-140. The priority date is now current for EB-3 or eligible to file. And your employee comes to you and they say, 
I'd like to downgrade to an EB3 so I can file my adjustment of status and get closer or get closer to filing adjustment of status. One thing to keep in mind is you cannot premium process that case because you don't have the original labor certification. You may be able to do so at a later time, but you cannot do so initially. Secondly, and I think more importantly, is USCIS, when you file an I-140, as any I-140s, they're going to review it as if it's the first time. They're going to reevaluate uh, the labor certification that was originally filed. They're going to reevaluate the foreign nationals' um, qualifications, and they're going to look at the job offer, and they're going to be looking at the ability to pay, like we've talked about in other uh, in earlier instances and topics. So, if there's a potential foreign issue, potentially not only could that downgraded EB3 uh, be denied, but potentially if USCIS finds a structural issue with the EB2 case in that analysis, they could potentially try and revoke that EB2. Exactly. And that's the, the big, big, I guess, concern because you as an employer, if you try to dissuade them, they'll be like, oh, they're trying to save the money and not file another case. But in today's climate, with everything being looked at under the microscope, you could potentially have this huge risk of losing both of your petitions uh, the employee, and now you lost the employee itself because now maybe they can't get the H-1 extensions anymore because they lost the I-140 petition approval because EB-3 and EB-2 got denied. What are the other alternative options, Kurzad? I mean, in the same vein uh, that we're seeing a downgrade phenomena now, we've previously seen an upgrade phenomena where individuals had been working for their employers. Now, this is typically for individuals who haven't changed employers. They've been working with their employers for a very long time. Previous to that, they've been working with maybe some other employer. And through time and, and, and promotion and, uh, and uh, just general job, uh, progression. job progression. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, they were able to upgrade with the same employer and have another alternative job offer in an EB2 in an EB2 classification mm-hmm. and have another I140. So effectively, the for, your foreign national employee might be the beneficiary of two I, uh, two approved I140s, mm-hmm. one in the EB3 classification, one in the EB2. Now, obviously, over time, your employee has probably been progressing, as Jim said, in their job. They're at a little bit of a higher level, maybe working with some more autonomy. They're working towards that EB-2, but now that the EB-3 case has become current, they are interested in filing their adjustment status, like Jim said, to get closer or to perhaps get ancillary benefits for their uh, foreign national uh, spouse, or if their children are getting close to uh, the age of 21, perhaps protecting them under the Child Status Protection Act and locking them in as derivatives. So they're interested in doing that. But from a logical perspective, to file the adjustment of status on the basis of that EB3 I-140 that was filed back in the day is likely to be viewed as a demotion. Now, most individuals like to progress. They don't like to be demoted. So it starts to make uh, a little bit of illogical sense as to why the uh, individual, the foreign national, might be see- seeking to uh, pursue the more for lack of a better term, junior job opportunity in the EB3 category rather than the EB2 category. Now. Though, in practicality, demotions seem to, you know, leave individuals kind of scratching their heads a little quizzically, it's not 
against the regulations to pick one job offer over the other. However, what's important at the filing of the I-140, uh, I-485 is that both parties express an intent, a bona fide intent, for the foreign national to take on that particular position when they get their green card. And they memorialize that by signing and executing a Form I-485 Supplement J. And it would be prudent when you have this type of situation where you're taking on that demoted position that you have contemporaneous documentation showing the bona fide intent to take on that uh, position, besides and apart from just the simple signing of the Supplement J. Um, because the worst thing that could happen is that down the line, when you're applying, for, when you're at the in front of the USCIS officer and you're about to get your green card, and the USCIS officer says, "Well, this all smells kind of funny to me. I can't believe that you would take this demotion. I think you filed this just to get the green card. I don't think it's a bona fide job opportunity anymore." And it could go to a pretty funny place. Um, so it's it's important that individuals who are going down the path of picking one. Uh, job opportunity over the other, namely EB3 versus EB2, be committed to that. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're forever locked in to that category. Down the line, you, you know, if circumstances change, you may change employer, there may be an upgrade, uh, there may be an interfiling. What if you have both the EB2 and EB3? So you could say, now I'm filing this and later again interfile the EB2 to show that now I'm taking the other job, which if, is higher and higher salary and the, better benefits. If the business realities support that decision, I, I don't think that that's per se a problem. But where I would get very, very nervous is, is if that was a strategy consideration right from the start, because that could conceivably be a, um, a, a, a fertile ground for USCIS to perhaps do some extreme vetting, to use the parlance of choice in uh, today's world, uh, to, to challenge the bona fide nature of the job opportunity. I think the downgrading is much more of going to be a problem. I think if, it, if you had an EB3 before, now you do an EB2 and file, I think that's less suspect because you're obviously getting a promotion of sorts and higher salary and using the higher. But if you're doing the downgrade because the priority dates have done a flip-flop, as, as Charlie Oppenheim of the U.S. Department of State announced, then you have the potential problem because who in their rational and normal mind would take a downgraded job with lesser responsibility and presumably lesser pay uh, as they continue to grow in years and years of experience. So I think that's a valid point, Korzad. Uh, just being mindful of the time, because we always try to wrap up within, within 45 minutes, is the last point we want to touch upon, of course, is citizenship slash naturalization. Most of us have been maybe watching in the TV, in the news, in newspapers, magazines, that the USCIS is actually re-adjudication, re-adjudicating prior green card cases during the citizenship interviews or even with the citizenship filing, they're actually giving people a hard time. They're den not just denying the citizenship, but saying we have the right now to start a deportation against you on your green card case because we feel that you didn't stay long enough with the green card employer. You committed fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So as you know, in order to be eligible for citizenship or naturalization, what we call an LPR, lawful permanent resident slash green card holder, you have to be lawfully admitted uh, to the United States, be a permanent resident for at least five years, unless you're married to a U.S. citizen, then it's only three years. You've been physically present in the U.S. for at least half of that five-year period or three-year period. 
and no absence from the United States should exceed more than 180 days in any one trip. And you also have what we often refer to as GMC or good moral character in the past five years or three relevant five, three-year period in order to get your citizenship approved. But now you have this whole underlying, especially in employment-based cases and marriage-based cases, but certainly that we've been seeing in employment-based cases where they are really, really looking at this. So, Jim, what have you been seeing? Yeah, so this has always been a potential uh, problem, and every now and then it came up. But in the past year, we've seen this happen with increased frequency substantially. And, and what it is is uh, the USCIS, during the naturalization interview, is revisiting the original job offer. Now, m- Generally speaking, that really focuses on the foreign national, but how it can affect you as employers is if the USCIS believes that the original green card job offer was not bona fide, potentially it opens up the employer for investigations in addition to the uh, potential denial of the N-400 and, as she, you mentioned, Sheila, potential deportation or removal. The uh, the USCIS and the Department of Labor investigate the employer, subject them to administrative site visits, immigration compliance checks, and other potential enforcement actions. So I know it sounds pretty scary when we talk about hot topics dealing with green card cases. We talked about permanent residents, the hot issues we're seeing with the PERM, with the Department of Labor, with USCIS. Um, but all of this really is something that all of you are already, unfortunately, noticing and seeing. So I don't know that a lot of what we're telling you is completely new other than reinforcing and telling you that it is rampant. It is happening all around. You are not the only one obviously being picked or selected for this undue cross-examination by the government, whether it is the U.S. Department of Labor or the USCIS for the PERM, the I-140 for H-1Bs. Obviously, we have seen that since the uh, Trump became the president and under the Trump administration, Every case is being scrutinized much more heavily. No case is a routine approval, as Korzad just pointed out a little while ago. And at the Murthy Law Firm, we continue, however, just to give you a rave hope that we do see a high number of approvals when cases are well documented, where you dot your I's and cross your T's. So working well with your lawyer, whether it is your company lawyer or your HR team or your Uh, outside lawyers like us at the Murthy Law Firm, make sure that the lawyers are up to date with the latest changes, that they are watching what is going on, that they can be proactive and prepare your cases like you are ready to take them to court. Because one of the things we've been seeing over and over and over again is whenever, very often when the administration is sued based on violation of fundamental due process rights or the Constitution, they are generally tending to lose those cases. So if a new file and appeal or respond to an RFE, remember, this might be an exhibit at the bottom in a court case where your prior documents or prior arguments could potentially be very helpful. So um, at the Murthy Law Firm, as you know, we continue to work with both existing and new uh, companies on PERM-related cases, on I-140s, on naturalization or citizenship cases to help you and your valued employees to navigate the shifting sands. Um, Please do not allow yourself to get disheartened with everything that is happening. Remember that you as employers have incredible power and rights. 
You have a lot going for you. You are creating jobs. You are paying taxes. And it will be an honor and a pleasure for us at the Murthy Law Firm to continue to work with you and never tolerate injustice of any, in any way, shape, or form from any person, any administration, any agency, because it is your lives, it is your livelihood, it is your business, it is your baby that you've created, and you deserve to have the best chance for success. So thank you for taking time and participating today, and we look forward at the Murthy Law Firm in continuing to help you. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Korzad Mehta, Jim McLaughlin, and our entire staff at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today. Have a wonderful afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.